All right. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for joining us for the third episode of FinTech Fireside Asia. It is a monthly online talk show where we bring you the brightest minds from the FinTech space from around the region and sit them down for a casual chat. My name is Vincent. This show is produced by the FinTech News Network and made possible thanks to Finastra. Today, we're joined by Cairo Abdullah, the CEO of Axiata Digital, which recently secured Malaysia's largest FinTech investment round from Great Eastern at 70 million US dollars at the valuation of 320 million dollars. During the same press conference, the group announced its ambition to build Malaysia's first unicorn. And today, we'll be talking to Cairo about his company's ambition for that coveted title and Malaysia's noticeable gap in producing unicorns compared to our neighbors. Thank you for joining us, Cairo. Welcome to the show. Hey, Vincent. Great to be on the show. How's everything? Oh, great, great. Glad to have you here. Now, before we begin, uh, I'd just like to remind the audience to feel free to ask questions at any time. I'd like to keep the session interactive and organic. So, you know, whenever you have questions, we'll just try to address them as we go along. Um, you can just comment in our YouTube link and we'll take it as much as we can. Now, let's jump straight into it. I'd like to start by addressing a question that's on the mind of many of our audience members. So when we started promoting the show, there were some comments uh, on social media who felt that maybe Axiata or Boost Holdings shouldn't be labeled as a unicorn in the future because of your listed heritage. Do you agree with this uh, characterization, Karen? <laughs> You know, frankly, for me, um, it actually doesn't really matter whether we're uh, labeled as a unicorn or, or otherwise, right? It is actually not about the title. It's not about the label. It's about creating shareholder value. Um, and I, I think the, the when when we announced the uh, Great Eastern deal, I think, as, as you mentioned before, we did talk about the unicorn valuation. I think that's it could have a nice catchphrase to attract the attention of perhaps uh, the press corps. Uh, but what we were really sort of gunning for was creating shareholder value. Um, and so if we do achieve a valuation of 1 billion uh, for us, it will potentially attract us to other partners, right? You know, beyond Great Eastern uh, that would be willing to partner with us to take us even further, right? So, so the goal is not so much um, um, to, to achieve that label, uh, the goal is to to uh, to find different uh, partners that may want to work with us, right? So, so if there are those who are out there that say, you know, we probably don't deserve to be called a unicorn, I'm I'm okay with that, completely okay with that. I mean, at the end of the day, it's what value you bring to your users and your shareholders and stakeholders and whatnot. And on that note, um, you know, I, I think a lot of people within the startup ecosystem, they, they tend to look at unicorns as a milestone for whether or not the country has a vibrant ecosystem for startups, right? Mm. So in Malaysia's case where we don't actually have a unicorn yet, do you think that's an important milestone for Malaysia or it's just a vanity metric that's not really necessary? I, I think it's important. It's not a vanity metric. Um, I, I think it's important from the perspective of uh, generating enough uh, uh, interest in the market, right? Uh, you know, truth be told, right now, um, you know, by and large, Malaysia is to a certain extent a side note in the overall Southeast Asia uh, investment scene. Um, and, and because, like you said, you know, we haven't actually kind of generated large enough um, um, tech startups uh, the, with the kind of valuations that we were just talking about. So I think if, if we do want to attract those kind of investors, there must be some sort of a story 
sitting behind it, right? Um, if mm. there is a unicorn type company uh, that that we are about to uh, that that we are able to close, then it then attracts those investors to find out what exactly is the story here, what's the play here, right? Um, mm. uh, and then it will then create a lot more sort of uh, uh, investors uh, that might be interested in uh, in startups in Malaysia. So so it is not just a a, a vanity metric. I, I think there is some real substance to it. <clears throat> But I mean, with the age of uh, Decacons, right? I wonder if the unicorn labels even uh, attract investors anymore. Well, it's funny you should say that, right? So, so yeah. I, I don't know whether you know this, but there are only seven <laughs> companies mm. in Bursa, Malaysia, right now mm. that has a valuation of above ten billion US dollars, mm. right? Mm. And and all seven companies are either regional or global in nature. Um, by the way, Axiata Group is not a Decacorn, right? It is, uh, once upon a time it was, but I think over the last uh, uh, few years when, when the, the, generally speaking, the telco market has been really sort of under pressure, it's actually dropped below the Decacorn mark, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, so, so in that sense, then you know these labels—they're all exciting, they're all attractive. Uh, but again, we have to kind of look into the context of Malaysia, right? Malaysia is not a market that, on a standalone basis, at, is at the scale uh, that can generate uh, that kind of valuation, right? Um, and actually, just on that note, I was just looking at it, right? There are only uh, out of the hundreds of companies that are listed on uh, Bursa Malaysia, only seven percent are of unicorn and above status. Uh, so it's a very very small population of companies that can actually uh, achieve those kind of valuations, right? So so it's 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 hard. It's going to be very very hard if you're sort of a pure play uh, in Malaysia uh, trying to achieve that valuation. <clears throat> I think yeah. I mean, really, you have to look at the total addressable market, right? But mm. why doesn't Malaysia have any unicorns yet? Like, what are the barriers faced by our startups? Because you know, markets like Hong Kong, markets like Singapore, they unnecessarily larger than, than than the markets that we have in Malaysia, right? So why is it that these countries are able to produce so many unicorns and we are nowhere nowhere close to having our first one and even struggle with our listed companies as well at that valuation. Mm. You know, I think I think it's a little bit what I said before. I think the mm. uh, the, the companies in Hong Kong, the companies in Singapore, the ones that actually I'm familiar with, uh, they're not playing mm. in the Singapore market alone, right? In fact, in most of the mm. the, the markets that uh, most of the startups that have achieved that kind of valuation out of Singapore, uh, it's because it's of uh, a regional presence, right? And and largely. Uh, there is enough emphasis mm. and focus on the biggest market in this region, i.e., Indonesia. Uh, plus, mm. you know, their, their presence in Thailand, in the uh, uh, Philippines, and some of the other big markets. Malaysia as a standalone market is relatively small. So, if you mm. do the math on, if you like, kind of the the profit pool of whatever industry that you're in, then you very quickly realize that unless you're able to scale to the other markets, it's very very hard to justify uh, the unicorn status. Right? It's not so much a barrier to entry per se. Mm. The barrier to entry is probably a barrier to entry to enter other markets, but it's really about sort of Malaysia as a standalone market, right? So the question then becomes, you know, is Malaysia the best base for you to then scale up regionally? Mm -hmm. um, there are there things that you would learn uh, and building up in Malaysia that you can actually then replicate and, and transfer to the other markets as well, right? So those are the kind of questions that you would ask. I think it's going to be different by the different uh, sectors, the different segments, uh, the different kind of products and services that you provide. 
Sure. Funnily, there was a quest the exact same question from the audience that we just answered. So, <laughs> yeah. <okay>, let's, <laughs> let's move along. So you're talking about uh, justifying that $1 billion valuation, right? So let's just maybe take a step back and look at uh, Axiata Digital and your digital financial services. So of course, those from Malaysia uh, who's following your journey is familiar with the Boost business, the Aspirasi business. But for those who is not tuning who's tuning in who's not from malaysia maybe you can give the audience a bit of a breakdown in terms of the uh, digital financial services that you guys do and what what other things you are looking to add on in the near future to justify that 1b valuation you're looking at yeah so so uh, if you go back to kind of how when we started this journey we we recognize that there is um, a segment of the population in our markets. And when I say our markets, uh, I'm, I'm referring to kind of the Axiata footprint, right? Mm -hmm. There's a large segment in our population of our markets, which are largely uh, either unbanked or underserved. Um, but that um, uh, smart foot penetration is relatively high. Uh, and, you know, obviously we recognize that the technology that the, the smartphone brings allows mm -hmm. us to provide uh, access to uh, to those customers, right? Provide us uh, uh, access to kind of create financial services products to that, right? So with that in mind, uh, we, we designed a roadmap. The roadmap started with a view that we wanted to create uh, micropayments uh, as a starting point. Mm -hmm. And micropayments was useful because it then creates the, mm -hmm. if you like, the transactional stickiness mm -hmm. to the customer. Mm -hmm. uh, and then thereafter, then layering other sort of uh, products on top of that, right? And, and of course, with micropayments as well, you then start collecting a, a large volume of information, which you can then use um, mm -hmm. uh, for the benefit of the other kind of financial services products. So the roadmap was generally speaking, create uh, micropayments, get enough scale uh, mm -hmm. on micropayments, uh, don't necessarily make a lot of money on micropayments, very, very hard to make money on micropayments, uh, but then start layering other forms of uh, financial services, right? So that's mm -hmm. why we started with, uh, in Malaysia, we started with Boost. Uh, we've achieved, I don't know, near 9, uh, 9 million uh, registered users right now. Uh, but then very quickly, um, then started focusing on actually the SME base that we have in the merchant base mm. uh, and providing uh, micro lending and micro insurance to that. And then later on, we'll be launching micro remittance and micro savings. Um, now, hopefully, uh, when uh, Bank Nagara issues its digital banking license, uh, there's probably enough, hopefully there's enough in there that's going to be attractive for us to want to apply mm. to it. Uh, and if we do apply to it, then we'll house all of this within the uh, digital banking uh, license, the digital banking operations. Sure. So yeah. um, I guess on that note, um, there's also questions about, because you mentioned that, you know, if you want to achieve that kind of valuation, you also need to be able to look at regional expansion. Correct. And there's also some questions from the audience looking at your expansion plan as well. I mean, of course, in Malaysia, you found uh, a good amount of success with boost with the local market. But in Indonesia, you're up against like large players like OVO and whatnot. So how, what is your... Um, the question is like, what's your expansion plan? Uh, what, what what is your strategy to compete with the bigger players who are already present in those markets to to build out the same kind of services in those markets? I, I think I think if you look at where our financial services have uh, been focused mm -hmm. on, it's largely been on the merchant basis as opposed to the consumer base, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, we have nine million registered users in Boost in Malaysia, but our lending and our insurance products have largely been focused mm -hmm. on the the SME. So as an example. 
example, uh, we have a, uh, you know, during uh, during the MCO, during the, the lockdowns uh, for COVID, we, we launched a, uh, a micro lending product. It's a non-commercial mm -hmm. product, by the way, uh, for our SME merchants. And attached to that uh, was a COVID-19 insurance package, right? Uh, so our, our DNA, if you like, on the financial services have been focused on that segment because we feel like there's a lot of this uh, particular segment that actually have mm -hmm. very little access to, you know, sort of structured financial services, right? Um, plus, we also feel that that's, um, if you like, productive lending. And if we do lend to them, uh, there's actually a hope in hell that we might actually get our money back as opposed to lending to the consumers for a whole mm -hmm. variety of reasons, which you might not uh, necessarily get your money back. And so we've been largely focused on that. Now, so if you look at our regional expansion plans, it's also been focused on that as well. Uh, in Indonesia, we stayed away from the consumer wallet mm -hmm. battle because as you rightfully pointed out, I mean, we have OVO, uh, you know, backed by Grab and, uh, and Lipo. Yeah. We've, got, uh, uh, we've got the GoPay guy. Uh, backed by Gojek, uh, they're writing billions and billions of dollars uh, investment into the overall ecosystem, right? And of course, we're going to be—it's going to be very, very difficult for us to to uh, to fight them. Uh, but what we what we did focus on was actually on the merchant base, right? So we when we started our journey um, in Indonesia, we started by doing a lot of merchant acquisition. Uh, to date, we have close to six hundred thousand uh, merchants uh, in Indonesia. Uh, Ninety odd percent of them are actually in what we call the tier three, tier four categories. Uh, so th this is usually single outlet, uh, 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 sole prop, mom and pops, um, not kind of the multi-branch um, uh, outlet. Usually these are guys who can only receive cash, right? And, and what do we do for them? Uh, we op open up access to the other wallets for them. Mm. There, are, there are several different wallets that are in play right. in Indonesia. We open access to them. Um, and then mm. through the transactions, we provide them with lending, we provide them with insurance, uh, we support them with some of the B2B payments that they will need to do as well, right? So, so our focus has actually, again, been largely on, on that sector. Uh, rest of the markets that we have, I think we, we of course, mm -hmm. we want to go where Axiata is. We don't necessarily mm -hmm. want to go where Axiata isn't, right? So um, if mm -hmm. you look at kind of the Axiata group, uh, we have a wallet uh, in Cambodia. It's called Smart Lui. Uh, we have a, mm -hmm. we have something in, in Sri Lanka as well. In fact, actually, we, our first financial services, our first banking experiment was actually in Sri Lanka. We bought a small bank in Sri Lanka, uh, tried to do a lot of the things. Um, in fact, we built our tech, right? Our, if you like, uh, light core uh, banking platform, mm -hmm. cloud-based core banking platform, and tried to implement it in Sri Lanka. A lot of the experimentation was done there. Uh, and then more recently, we were awarded a uh, a mobile financial services license uh, from the Bank of Bangladesh. So those are the markets that we are now sort of looking to expand into, right? But obviously, in all those that I've named, the big market here uh, is is, uh, is Indonesia, right? Very, very sizable market. <clears throat> mm. But I guess like um, if you have 600,000 merchants, that means there's still quite a bit of a journey because it's, it's a really large market. It's a very large market. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, but um, maybe if I can just add on to that, I mean, six hundred thousand. Um, it, it there's still. It, it, you're right. It's a very very large market, and you know, there's probably a few more millions to go uh, before we kind of hit critical scale on that, and 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 we will continue to push on that. But at six hundred thousand, there's already enough of a base for us to monetize, right? So, um, you know, imagine that we lend to uh, ten percent of that base. That's mm -hmm. a very large uh, loan book uh, that that we will be servicing, right? And and that will make us you know, a fairly mm -hmm. large, uh, albeit you know very small ticket size, but a very large financial services institution in Indonesia. So just out of curiosity, because you mentioned that obviously you would focus in markets where Axiata is present to kind of leverage off existing infrastructure, so existing networks that you've built. 
uh, existing stuff. But um, are you also looking at markets where there are conducive environments for your kind of business to operate, whether from a consumer viewpoint, a merchant viewpoint, or a regulatory viewpoint? We we would we won't venture too far by the way. So if, mm. if you know, I mean, uh, of course, we've been speaking to partners uh, in places like Brazil, mm. right? And, and it's a great mm. market, massive market, yeah. very yeah. similar yeah. in many regards to uh, some of our uh, mm. um, conditions in, say, Indonesia and whatnot. Uh, but it's mm. way too far away, right? So so we won't yeah. venture that far. I think our focus is largely going to be uh, in mm. Southeast Asia, South Asia, right? So um, mm. where we have certain familiarity with the market. Uh, where to some extent the Exeta name is a little bit known. Uh, because the other thing I was going to add, and in, in those markets where we don't have a presence, we would be looking to partner with someone. We won't go in alone, mm -hmm. right? So we would want to look for a local partner that have certain characteristics mm -hmm. that we, uh, within the Exeta group, is providing to our, uh, our tech startups that we will be looking for the local partners to be able to do that as well. What about markets like Philippines who recently uh, said they're going to rev kind of unveil their own virtual banking framework. Is that some kind of market that the group would consider as well? Yeah, we would. Uh, but again, I think I think uh, only if there is um, sort of a real partner uh, that uh, mm. we can, a local partner that we can be working with, right? Now, now one of the things that um, um, is always sort of in the back of my mind is whether there's sort of enough resources, right? Not, not just financial resources, mm. but also kind of human capital uh, to be able to go after all these opportunities, right? Because, you know, in order to be able to achieve that or justify that unicorn value value proposition that we talked about, uh, the unicorn status, um, I think number one, of course, is that you have to be building solutions and products that are solving the customer space pain points, uh, that you do have a business and operating model uh, that can solve those customer pain points uh, and yet generate the you know positive unit economics and also very hard to replicate to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. But more importantly, that you can do this and scale this across your market and across multiple markets uh, sustainably in a very short period of time. And when you put all that equation together, you go like, shit, you know, like I need uh, an army huh? of very talented, capable people, right? And so when you put mm. up, when you, when you think about the, the opportunities that are out there, there are. Um, and mm. But you just need to be sort of balancing them to ensure that you don't sort of spread yourself too thin, uh, that mm. where your focus on has enough sort of uh, a, a sustainable strength, if you like, robustness, uh, before you venture too far out, right? So so that's why we're a bit a little conservative. Uh, we, we work with markets that we're a little bit more familiar with, that we have, uh, uh, you know, kind of a local partner in the form of the Axiata operating company, uh, because then it actually de-risks our push, de-risks our investments a little bit. Wonderful. And you know, speaking on that note, like of course, there's uh, many ways to get talent, right? And one one way that uh, companies that are well funded do it is that they start to acquire higher companies. So in line with that, you know, there's a question from the same member of the audience. Dave is asking if you are looking to acquire smaller fintechs to complement your digital banking aspirations. Uh, the, the answer is yes, uh, and there are a few term sheets out there right now, <laughs> uh, which pro we, I, I probably can't go into too much detail, uh, but yes, we, we are, right? Uh, and and AccuHire is not something that we're not um, uh, used mm. to. I think if you go back to the history of Exeter Digital, uh, when we started scaling up our uh, our ad tech business, right, uh, we did a very major AccuHire, uh, and that's worked out very well for us. And and so we do, uh, we are looking at, uh, at M&As uh, to actually help us uh, bolt on certain capabilities or give us access to certain segments of the markets that we aren't able to uh, able to build organically. Wonderful. I guess we will be uh, receiving a press release on that soon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs>
Yeah. So um, on that note, because uh, beyond creating value for consumers, stakeholders, of course, profitability is a very important measure as well. Mm-hmm. And we're looking at a lot of the soft challenger banks in the UK struggling with this issue of profitability, right? Especially when the next round of funding is, is difficult to come by. Uh, so a lot of these new banks are, are kind of starting to charge fees they didn't previously charge. So they're starting to look less and less appealing compared to even some of the incumbent banks as well. So mm. that's kind of in line with uh, Stuart, who's kind of asking the question of like, you know, there are a lot of these banks that are not profitable yet. What What is mm. your uh, plan to profitability for, for the group? Oh, so, so I think if if you look at the different parts of the mm-hmm. business right now, so on the um, on the the micropayment side, yes, we're not profitable there. Uh, it's very very hard to make money in that particular uh, uh, product line. Um, MDRs, merchant discounts rate. Uh, rates are razor thin. Um, it's it's in some cases zero. Actually, in many yeah. many cases zero. Uh, and one would argue that actually it's probably negative because there's some subsidizing involved in getting the consumers to spend. Um, and uh, and on top of that, you you add on things like you know kind of your cash in costs. And if your cash in cost is from a physical offline, you know you 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 have to pay you know a nice spread on that. If it's from uh, the banks, you know the banks will charge you for that. If it's from credit cards, you know you get whacked uh, with a very large uh, large um, uh, charging rate. Um, so so and and then on top of everything else. Um, the the scale and the expansion requires you know a very high acquisition cost a very high retention fee when you do all of that together you realize oh, wow shish you know like it's going to be very very <laughs> tough for you to make money around that having having said that though I think uh, the if you take the Malaysian market I think there are signs of uh, of, of market consolidation. And when I say consolidation, I don't necessarily mean MA in the market per se. What I mean mm-hmm. is that the, the share, the market share is now shifting to a smaller number of people, right? As opposed to being mm-hmm. as fragmented as it was it was before, right? And I think, um, and, you know, you and I have had conversations around it, right? Like there is kind of like in the telco industry back in the early days, right? Now in the in the mm-hmm. uh, in the micropayment space, there's sort of the emergence of the big three, right? And, and the big three are now commanding a pretty sizable share of the overall market um and when that happens then there is some normalcy in the market right that there are some uh less crazy practices if i can call it that um (laughs) that then allows us to maybe not make money but not lose so much money right so so that's micropayment a little bit at least stem the bleeding exactly but then what's very interesting is when you start looking at the other parts of our business uh, and and our micro lending business is actually profitable um, and I would sort of, uh, um, I guess the reason why it's, it's, it's profitable is because, well, first of all, the interest rate environment in, in Malaysia, and even though we practice uh, very, st- very strict responsible lending, um, ev- the interest rate regime is attractive enough that there's enough headroom, right, for you to charge decent interest rates, uh, charge uh, decent, uh, if like, fees. Uh, that then allows you to make money, right? As long as your NPLs, uh, as long as your defaults are under control. And our defaults, you know, um, uh, so far has been sort of very, very much under control, right? Uh, so so I remember in the early days, we were panicking a little bit uh, because our default rates are relatively high, but then you realize that actually you need to train your machine, right? Um, it's a machine learning uh, credit card scoring engine, right? You need to train, you need to provide it with training data. And if, you're, if there's no defaults in your training data, then the machine will know how to kind of decide which ones to give and which ones not to give, right? So, so there needed to be some amount of losses that we had to take on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you look at it today, 
uh, uh, what you call it, our, our default rates are sub 2.5%. In fact, actually, prior to COVID, it was much lower than that. Uh, mm. You know, obviously, as, as with COVID, some of the uh, some of the micro SMEs, uh, SMEs, uh, they basically had to shut uh, their, their business, their operations. Um, and so we are starting to see a little bit more defaults. But outside of that, uh, our default rates are still, you know, very, very, uh, uh, very good. Um, our cost of uh, disbursement, cost of distribution, cost of collection is near zero. So, so net net, the marginal cost of our operation is actually very, very low. Uh, and given the interest rate environment, it's no surprise that we are actually able to kind of uh, make money in that particular business. Uh, Micro insurance is, of course, is relatively new for us. Uh, you know, with the partnership of uh, Great Eastern, we're starting to launch these if you like sachet insurance products, uh, we're learning a lot of different things about it um, around kind of how do we ensure that there's retention, uh, there's rollovers, uh, there's repeat buying and so on and so forth. Uh, but by and large, uh, uh, with uh, once you acquire a user and you are able to do that, that in itself is actually very profitable as well. I think Stuart's right, uh, I, the person who asked the question, Stuart, right? I think Stuart's right in the sense that as you start scaling up, you know, are you then going to be forced to lend to customers that your machine will say, hey, no, you cannot lend to uh, because there's a very high probability of default. Um, I think we have to kind of maintain uh, very strict discipline around that. Uh, so, you know, if that means actually putting some uh, stoppers around our ability to achieve the one billion uh, valuation mark, maybe we will actually impose certain disciplines around it because we don't want to scale to a point where we're providing lending uh, to segments of population that will definitely default. We don't want to scale to a certain point where we're selling insurance products uh, to people who don't really want them, right? So, yeah. so we're going to maintain some, some discipline around that. So I guess the other dimension to that is also a lot of these new banks that we look at, they are primarily trying to earn their income from the consumers, right? Therefore, you see all these fees coming up. So yeah. as opposed to your model where you're more focused on the SME aspect of things, micro micro lending part of things. But, yeah. but as a follow-up question, um, and, and your micro lending business falls under your Aspirasi umbrella, correct? Correct, yes. And how, how, how big is that loan book? Like, are you, are you able to share with the audience? Uh, let me just, uh, one second, I was just asking, you know what, like I, I knew this question was going to come up. <laughs> um, and so I was asking, uh, I was asking uh -huh. guy, the guys, right? So it's $40 million uh, right now, uh, year to date. So uh, US dollars, not ringgit. Um, right. Yeah. So it's it's not it's not massive yet, but it's it's growing. Mm. Mm. What's your projection in the medium term? Like maybe in the so we're trying to we're trying to grow that loan book to about half a billion uh, within the next two years. Um, and if you kind of draw a straight line on sort of our growth trajectory right now, that seems possible. But again, I mm. I, I always caution my teams, right? You know, how many of the segments that we're not Quite willing to lend to today will we be forced to lend to if we want to have a 500 500 million dollar loan book right mm. uh, so that's kind of something that we we, we have to sort of uh, uh, keep in mind uh, it also means that we have to train our data our, our machine with a lot more uh, different sets of data uh, which may mean um, uh, kind of going into markets where we don't have the data right now but we'll have to find partnerships that actually gives us the data uh, to then try and experiment and figure out uh, you know which segments will be uh, will be good to uh, to lend to and otherwise Wonderful. And um, to follow up on the insurance aspect of things, I, I guess mm -hmm. one of the main factors why insurance is attractive is an attractive sector in Malaysia is because the underinsured is very high, right? Correct. So um, how, how, how much of that 
kind of partnership with Great Eastern and the investment plays into your next strategy? What what kind of insurance services are you looking to introduce? What kind of gaps are you trying to fill? And um, how are you using your ecosystem to fill these gaps? Yeah, so so I think the you, you mentioned that uh, you know the uh, insurance is actually very uh, underpenetrated in our markets yeah. today. Uh, it, it's funny when you, when you talk to a lot of the folks out there, the people who are mm. potentially buying these products, right? Um, mm. They want protection. They don't know insurance, right? So there's mm. a little bit of a kind of a mismatch right there. That um, as an example, if you go to the east coast in Malaysia, and you know that every other year uh, mm. there'll be floods, you know, the, the storms will come towards the end of the year, there'll be major flooding, uh, you know, loss of property, uh, destruction of property, loss of uh, uh, livelihoods and all that, right? And so when you talk to the folks out there, right, and, um, and you, you tell them, hey, you know, why don't you go and buy this insurance package, it'll protect you and, and so on and so forth, right? And mm-hmm. they don't get it, right? They don't understand mm-hmm. why do I need to pay this fee? And oh, you know, if something happens, I might get it. But they definitely want protection, right? They want protection from that kind of loss of livelihood. So I think there is a little bit of a mismatch Mm-hmm. around kind of the communication that needs to happen uh, together with uh, kind of serving their needs, right? Um, now, now, obviously, these are segments of consumers or segments of, of customers, I should say, that's sort of way below the, um, um, uh, if you like, way the, below the kind of the profitability mark for traditional insurance mm-hmm. companies. I mean, to say that if you apply a traditional agent-led selling right. model for insurance, right, you're never going to be able to make money on that particular segment. So we, we needed to do different things, right? We needed to do um, uh, use technology a little bit around our distribution, around our disbursement, uh, around our communication, uh, but also... For us, because we're doing it for the SME segment, try to bundle it or package it with a lot of the other things that we sort of offer with them, right? And so that they can then actually experience this initially in the in their minds, in their minds, are uh, free, mm-hmm. right? But over time, then starting to sort of see, hey, look, I actually need this protection, um, and and mm-hmm. and so I'm willing to pay that monthly premium, which by the way, it's two ringgit, three ringgit, five ringgit, mm-hmm. right? Very very small uh, premiums uh, on a monthly basis to get that kind of protection. Uh, w- one example um, is um, is sort of key man risk, right? Uh, we call it key man risk, um, and and essentially what it is is that if you imagine uh, you're a um, a chakwitel seller, right, um, in a street corner somewhere, uh, and you fall sick, right? Um, hopefully not from COVID, but you fall sick from you know just the, the normal common cold, and you're out for about five days, right? Now, um, when you're out for that five days, it's actually not so much the medical bills or, yeah. or and whatnot that hits you, right? Because actually, yeah. the government's done a good job. MOH has done a good job in providing healthcare at very very low cost, right? But it's actually the lost income. Right. Um, and, and that starts hitting you because, you know, you don't make that much money anyway. And, and you've got your bills, you've got your uh, children's education, your rents and whatnot to cover. It's the lost income that starts hitting them. Right. And so we designed this product that says, hey, look, you know what you call it? Uh, pay five ringgit a month or pay 10 ringgit a month and you get this much uh, coverage should you fall sick, you know, and all you need to do is you need to show a, you know, a, an MC or, a, or or some kind of certificate mm-hmm. from uh, from the clinic uh, and then you'll be able to claim that, right? And that covers them for the five days of lost income. That's a great product. Again, that's a communication around uh, uh, protection versus insurance. We don't sell insurance, we sell protection. All right, that's, that's a nice little distinction over there, isn't it? So it, it sounds like to me that um, right now the focus is still on micro insurance and micro entrepreneurs as well. Um, do you see a scenario where you graduate to 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 kind of take on 
um, things like life insurance, critical illness uh, to consumers? What, what is the roadmap over here for your insurance aspect of business? I, th I think right now we are very focused on the SME segments. We're starting to experiment with consumers, but only again on things that are potentially synergistic to uh, the portfolio services that we have, right? So one of the uh, more successful products that we have on the insurance side is bill protection, right? Again, the word protection, right? So so you're, you're paying your monthly bills, but for some for whatever reason, you're unable to meet the deadline and whatnot, bill protection kicks in, right? And it covers that bill for you, and then you can kind of top up uh, after that. Um, so, so, so that's what we're sort of focusing on. Uh, we're experimenting a little bit with the consumers. Obviously, the consumers is a much, much larger base for us. We have like, around 9 million in in, 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 the, in Malaysia, you know, at the Cellcom user base. Uh, in Indonesia, if you focus on the Excel user base, uh, you know, that's massive, right? The one thing, um, uh, uh, consumer insurance is actually not new to us. Uh, I think, uh, Vincent, you may know that once upon a time, uh, we invested in a company called uh, uh, Beamer. Uh, Beamer was yeah. a very large micro-insurance uh, mm -hmm. company in the region actually we still have a a stake in the company right and yeah. and they were 100 focused on mm. um what do you call it on the consumer segment so we do believe that at least on insurance there is a market for them um but i think the way we are working with our partners right now the likes of great eastern we want to become if you like lead generation for them right uh, we want to get it to a certain size get them to the habit of buying these protection packages uh, and then move them and graduate them to uh, the products that our partners will be able to serve them and serve them much better right so the your traditional uh, life insurance product your traditional PNA right excellent so uh, we don't have much time left so what I'll do is take one more question from the audience and then we'll kind of wrap up with some closing thoughts so uh, we have a question from Rizwan over here, who is the president of the FinTech Association in Malaysia. This question is quite long, half our faces are covered. Yeah. Wow. Okay. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I'm trying to read it. That's, <laughs> a, that's a really detailed one. Besides the technology agility, how different is Axiata Digital's business model as a digital bank in optimizing existing revenue models and adding other types of revenue touch points, uh, for example, capital markets, given the current level of financial literacy in the domestic and regional spectrum? That's a great question and, and feel like, uh, Rizwan, we should probably uh, catch up over coffee for this one, right? So um, I think uh, short answer is we're still figuring all the, the parts, the components to our digital bank right now. Um, if you like one of the big, uh, what you call it, one of the big things that we did when we built our bank in in Sri Lanka is the idea that, uh, that you could actually massively reduce uh, costs uh, on the operational side, uh, I'll come on to the uh, I'll come on to the the balance sheet side, right? Because on the operation side, uh, with the technology, right? So a uh, cloud-based, uh, light core banking system uh, with a massive uh, API layer, a lot that allows different sort of uh, components or different sort of other fintechs to to plug in, which is a model that we will uh, introduce in Malaysia as well. So all the other fintechs who are on this call right now, you know, we will be open for business. There will be uh, avenues for you to sort of plug in into our digital bank uh, that we can then provide. Sort of that we then work with you to provide services uh, to the customers, right? But on on the capital market side, this is something that we are working with uh, certain partners right now to try to figure it out uh, because it's a little bit more complicated or complex an issue. Um, right now, our if you like the unit economics of our business model does not rely too much on the gains that we can get there. Um, uh, if if you take for example right now our existing lending business, um, we probably don't have the best cost of capital 
hospital. In fact, actually pretty pretty horrible because we're actually using Axiata Group balance sheet. Uh, and the whack on Axiata Group balance sheet is really, really high. So there are probably different things that we are working with our different partners, right? Whether it's Great Eastern, whether it's some of our banking partners uh, to figure out uh, more creative models uh, to solve uh, the balance sheet, uh, the balance sheet side, right? But certainly on the technology and our operational side, I think we've, we're starting to uh, have a blueprint um, that would really massively bring down our unit economics of serving these uh, these uh, bottom of the pyramid customers, if I can call it that. So I guess that also ties in nicely to another question from the audience, which I'll just show for the last one because you kind of answered it as well. Uh, so Raj is actually asking how ready your backend system is to deal with integrating to these ecosystems. Um, anything to add? To? Right. So, so I think you may have noticed in the announcement of uh, actually, I don't know whether we mentioned it in the announcement at, at all. But when we did the the Great Eastern deal and we did we we created the the boost holdings. Um, one of the things that we mentioned was that our API gateway business, AppyGate was going to be subsumed into uh, the financial services business, the financial services whole call. And the reason why we wanted to do that was uh, from day one, we were very keen on ensuring uh, that we build, um, if you like, uh, a sort of a middleware layer that allows different partners uh, to plug in, right? And, and actually, whilst we're doing that, we're already talking to quite a lot of different players out there uh, that will create products that we will never have the capacity or the capability to do but then we give them access uh, via API into our customer base, into our authentication systems, into our et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, and that's the things that we're sort of uh, building right now. Again, this is not new to us. We've done that before uh, with our experiment in Sri Lanka, and we're just bringing it here uh, and doing it at a much larger scale. <clears throat> you, you did uh, announce that during your press conference. It's just that- I did, been- huh? big headline of like largest fintech investment round right so that's what <laughs> i've got distracted yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, um a lot of people that are tuning in today are also fintech entrepreneurs themselves right and they are also looking to raise their funds whether it's a seed round or series a or series b yeah um, what advice do you have for them in terms of courting investors and raising funds Wow. Okay. So, so I mean, it's um, um, I guess I'll 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 take it in two. I'll answer the question in two sort of two two different uh, buckets, right? So one is is around if you like the product and the service that that you're offering, and then the two is is if you like the sort of the the fundraising activity, right? Um. So on on the first side, I think um you got to always ensure that, and, and this sounds very motherhood and apple pie, I apologize for that, but but it is so fundamental to your success. I, I think you always have to be focused on ensuring that you are in fact building solutions and building products that are solving customer pain points, that are solving customer pain points with a business on an operating model that can generate positive unit economics. Uh, that's not something that's very easily replicable uh, and that you can then do this uh, at, at scale across multiple markets and do that you know, at, at lightning speed, right? Uh, it sounds mother hood and apple pie, but it's damn difficult, as many of you will know, right? Very, very difficult. Um, On the fundraising side, now, unless you have people on your team who have experiences uh, and the connections, right? One of the advice that I'll give you is to go hire an advisor or maybe find someone who you are open and willing to partner with. You might have to give him a one, two, three percent of your equity uh, and then sort of task him with going out to, to do that, right? You don't have to hire an investment bank. And in fact, actually uh, at your size and your scale, no, none of the big boutiques will actually uh, want to work with you anyway, because you know if you're looking to raise 10 million, 
the amount of money that they'll get for them, it's not yeah. worth their time, right? So you're yeah. not going to be able to find that. But here's the beautiful thing about our markets, right? Uh, there are a lot of these individuals who are potentially ex-investment bankers, um, and, you know, folks who have done some kind of fundraising before, folks who have some relevant experience, um, and they can offer their services to you. Some of them, by the way, might want to become seed or angel investors in your, in, in your uh, personally invest in your company. But those are the guys that you might want to kind of reach out to. Um, and, uh, and, and they're not too difficult to find. If you're really interested in finding some of them, I'm sure, you know, if you reach out to me, I can kind of connect you to, to one or two of them. Uh, and then they can help you, right? And, and to a certain extent, um, uh, you know, obviously for us, in the early days, we used a little bit more, but we are now at the size and the scale. It's probably easier to 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 attract people. Um, um, but in the early days, we definitely did use one or two of these individuals, and they definitely did help. Wonderful. And I know I've said like the final question for the last two questions, but interesting <laughs> question. So let's not uh, let it go to waste, right? And then we'll wrap up. So we have a question from an insurer over here, the CEO of an insurance company. Oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was a good question. I thought it would be a nice yeah. uh, note to wrap off on. Um, so he's asking, like, how has it been to work uh, with insurers so far? You know, insurers are quite technologically backwards in general. So is it a case of them being product providers and the rest is being taken care by you? How far can this go? Yeah, so I think, uh, what do you call it? We all very clear on sort of what roles, right? And, and again, it comes from years of... Uh, tuition right uh you know with with bima we found how uh, how bima struggled to work with the the underwriter themselves you know because obviously by and large they were a distribution company right and and we learned a lot from that i think um if and, and maybe kind of this is a plug for great eastern i mean they've been fantastic right i think what they recognize is you know they don't know what they don't know but there are certain things that they do know and they're probably much better than us on those kind of things, right? So we work with them on co-creating the products. Um, and it's amazing uh, how flexible that they've become. Uh, you know, I, I don't know whether you guys realize this, but you know, prior to announcing the equity deal, there was actually a commercial partnership that we signed with them uh, last November. And and you know, basically from the start of this year, we've been experimenting a lot with them um, in co-creating products, and that's very very difficult because you know, usually insurance companies will take you know nine months maybe to develop a new product. Uh, we wanted a new product to come out in two weeks, right? And so there's been quite a, a, a lot of a learning process uh, for both sides. Um, but I think we're not at a point where it's it's working very very well. They they understand the rhythm uh, of uh, of the kind of business that they were in. Uh, they understand the value that we bring in the sense that we are looking at a distribution model that is so different from the traditional uh, agent led model of selling insurance. Uh, they recognize that we are able to kind of go out there and tackle segments of customers and segments of consumers that we will never be able they will never be able to ta uh, tackle. We on our side recognize that you know we don't understand the detailed intricacies of you know the underwriting uh, part of the the, the 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 business and so uh, that's the if you like kind of the symbiosis that we've sort of uh, now um, um, uh, found ourselves sort of working in rhythm right so so it's a great question uh, Rohit uh, and and it kind of went through we went through if you like sort of nine months of learning uh, and once in a while we still get on these steering calls and there will still be you know sort of things that we have to uh, uh, things that we have to trash out on the table to kind of make sure that we are actually in sync in what we want to do uh, what they want us to do <clears throat> i'm sure you've had a uh, very long conversations with the recent compliance team on this this speed to market. <laughs> it's very true very true yeah. very true it's, it's unfortunately we've unfortunately ran out of time 
um, do you have any closing thoughts you want to share with the audience before we go? Uh, well, if the audience is a bunch of sort of fintechs out there, then my mm -hmm. message to you is that I think this is a very, very exciting time, right? Forget the ambition of sort of the unicorn and whatnot for a second, but recognize that actually because of COVID, we are moving into a digital first new norm. Any report that you read about contactless and uh, about about uh, a cashless, contactless sort of transaction will mean that if you are providing a service that require that does not require a face-to-face -face interaction in closing uh, the, the the product or the selling of the product and services, then uh, chances are you'd be able to sort of uh, 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 build a business around it, right? So I think this is a very exciting time for us. It's unfortunate that it's coming in the back of a global pandemic, but it, you you should see it as kind of the role that you will play uh, in providing you know product services solutions to the people who are in need uh, in a post-pandemic you know uh, digital first new norm. I think it's quite pertinent right like the first fintech revolution was brought on by the previous crisis perhaps the second re revolution will be brought on by a separate crisis. Mm -hmm. Well with that only leads me to uh, thank you for taking your time, Carol, in joining us and, and sharing your thoughts with us today. And to thank the audience for taking the time to tune in. Uh, we hope you enjoyed the session and uh, do join us for the future episodes as well. Thank you and have a good day ahead. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.